the far enemy being the clear opposite, the near enemy being that state which is close enough so that it can masquerade as the state of the Brahma-vihara so that we can get confused and uncertain. But really, it is, it is quite a distinct and different feeling or understanding. The far enemy of metta is anger or fear, that state of aversion, or the near enemy is the state of attachment, the clinging, holding on, <coughs> grasping. Maybe the, well, certainly the most recent, I was about to say the best, but at least it's my most recent understanding of, of the concept of metta, centers on an understanding of what it means to be inclusive, to include, rather than to erect barriers, to, to cut off, to reject, to push away, or to cling with attachment. So from that perspective, metta, more than anything, is actually a view, it's a vision, it's a way of seeing the world. Much more so than a particular feeling or emotion or sentiment. It's the view of inclusiveness, so that when we, we see with that eye, what we see is that no one and nothing really stands alone and apart, that our very existence is the function of a net of influences, conditions, relationships, that is who we are. That is who everybody is. Now, when we began the retreat, and I said that this is our anniversary season, well, six years ago, when we uh, had our 20th anniversary, we decided to have a big party. And since February is not usually the best time to have a party um, in Massachusetts, we waited till the summer. And we did have a, a big celebration. And part of that celebration was the planting of a tree down in the garden. The planting was done by some of the teenagers who come here to sit in what is known as the Young Adults Course. It's interesting because now you can go down to the garden and all these years later you can take a look at the tree. And there are a lot of different levels or ways in which to be viewing that tree. You can see it as just a tree, seemingly solid, separate, a singular entity, or you can actually go down to the garden and look at the tree and have a sense of that, that web of conditions. You can look at the tree and sense the earth, which is nourishing it, and all of the years in which people have shepherded this piece of earth and stewarded it in some way, and you can sense the effect of the rainfall and the quality of the air and all of the many, many, many influences that affect the quality of the rain, the quality of the air. You can sense the sunlight and the moonlight. You can go down to the garden and look at the tree and also get a feeling for the fact that it is existing now through 
a piece of land that's being maintained by this organization, this society. So I sometimes say, you know, I go down to the garden and I look at the tree and I see meetings. You know, I see board meetings and staff meetings. I see, now I see 26 years worth of meetings to maintain this institution. Or you can go down to the garden and look at the tree and also get a sense of the history of, of that teenager. You know, why was it that they came here to practice meditation at like 14 years old, something like that? That's also some part of the existence of the tree. There's a way in which we can go down to the tree and we can see the whole universe. That is the view, that's the vision, the mind state of metta. And it's the truth of things. It's not just a fanciful imposition that we put on top of a a turbulent reality to try to make it, it seem more palatable. It is how things actually are that we exist in this kind of relationship of interconnectedness. Sometimes I also think sitting in front of a room full of people like this, well, how many of us are actually sitting here together right now? You know, what if we added, well, you can add your benefactor, your friend, your neutral person, and your difficult person right off the bat. And then we added everybody who'd ever given us a book or read us a poem or told us about their own meditation experience and so somehow inspired us to want to try it as well. So what if they were all here too? And then we added everybody who'd ever hurt us in a really critical way so that we were almost forced to look deeper for a sense of happiness. And so what if they were all here too? And all the people who made the clothes that we're wearing right now and who grew the food that we ate today. And if we looked with a certain kind of vision, this is what we would see. It's really a lot more crowded than it appears on the surface. But the truth is that's what we exist within, is this tremendous fabric of life itself. Whether or not we act in a certain way, in response to that vision will depend on many things. Our, our sense of justice, of appropriateness, whatever clarity we can bring to a certain situation about what might be the most skillful thing to do. But no matter what action we do take, it can be born out of that, that sense of, of connection as the bottom line truth of things. A few years ago, right in this season, I was very sick for a long time. I had the flu, and it wouldn't go away, and then it turned to bronchitis, and I got sicker and sicker and sicker. And this went on for months. And finally, I was getting better. I was living in New York City and walking down the street one day, and I heard a woman's voice saying, I was really sick all winter, and I'm finally getting better. So naturally intrigued, I turned around, and it was a woman who was giving some money to a street person who was sitting on the ground. She said, I was really sick all winter, and I'm finally getting better, and I just wanted to share the joy. Which was an incredible moment for me, because I had just walked right by this guy (laughs) sitting on the street. (laughs) 
you know, and I'd been really sick all winter, and I thought, wow, that was an amazing teaching, you know, should I go back and say, I was really sick too, and I'd like to make some more money, you know, or like, you know, but it isn't so much a question of the rightness or the wrongness of giving somebody money in a particular situation, but it's that understanding that that person sitting there on the ground has something to do with us. You know, that our lives are connected. Whether that's easy to absorb or not, that is the truth. And so what we do can be done with that, with that vision of inclusion. So that's metta. The second Brahma-vihara is that state of compassion, which Joseph talked about last night. The far enemy of compassion is cruelty. It's seeing the suffering that somebody is in and wishing for it to extend and deepen and further and last and endure and all of those things. Whereas the near enemy of compassion is sometimes translated as um, grief or sorrow, which means the state of being so overcome or shattered by the suffering we are witnessing that we are actually drained. We're incapable of that movement of the heart, the trembling of the heart, to try to help, to try to uh, be responsive, because we are so debilitated ourselves through, through being overcome by it. Once uh, Joseph and I had gone to Russia to teach, this was a long time ago, it was actually still the Soviet Union, and we went surreptitiously, we went as part of a tour group and never really went and toured anything. Um, but quietly, every afternoon, we go to somebody's living room and just teach. And there was this translator helping us. And in that that particular trip, I was speaking a lot about compassion, and every time I said the word compassion and it was translated, I would feel this really funny energy in the room. And finally, I sat down with the translator and I said, when I say compassion, what do you say? And they went into this very kind of florid, passionate description of, you know, oh, you know, it's the state like where you... You feel completely broken by looking at suffering and it's, you're just you know, destroyed. And, and she said, it's like someone has taken a giant stake and driven it through your heart. And, <laughs> and I thought, well, no wonder I'm getting this really funny feeling you know, whenever I say the word. But that isn't so very far off from sometimes how we view it. Sometimes we do have that notion that it needs to be debilitating to be genuine. Whereas really, what are we left with to move forward, to, to reach out, to try to make for change? Compassion, not the near enemy, but compassion itself, is said to have a certain kind of sufficiency because of its tremendous vision of oneness, of non-separateness. That is its own special kind of joy. So even though what we're looking at is suffering, what we're opening to is suffering and acknowledging the suffering, within that, there is that, that quality of energy of feeling how connected we all are. 
I had this wonderful experience a few years ago, some of you probably did as well, when His Holiness the Dalai Lama came to New York City and gave a public talk in Central Park. It was at the end of several days of teachings that were held in a theater, and then um, this big event in the park, and a very good friend of ours was organizing the whole thing, and it was very much her wish that many, many people come to Central Park and that all kinds of people come, that would be very diverse. And, and so she put a lot of energy. Those of you who were there at the time might remember, you know, getting off at a subway station, seeing a big poster of the Dalai Lama wherever you were. And the day finally came when the talk was about to happen. And the day before, it had poured rain. So she was quite uneasy about how many people might actually come. But the very day... It wasn't raining. We got up and went to the park. When I entered the park, I couldn't see anything. All I could hear was the sound of Tibetan chanting somewhat in the distance, so I just followed the sound. And we just walked a ways and then turned the corner, and there was an ocean of people. It was this huge, enormous mass of people. The State Department, which provided the security for the event, estimated it at about 250,000 people. It was just everywhere your eye could land, there were people who had come to gather to hear him speak. And we all sat there. There was a very beautiful quality of quiet as we waited for him to speak. And when he finally began talking, he began in a way that I found quite startling. He began by saying, you know, from a certain point of view, I haven't had such an easy life. He said, I had to assume power when I was 16. I had to flee into exile in my early 20s. I've had to try to maintain a culture in exile, intact, through all of these years. I've had to hear daily the reports of all of the um, difficulties and atrocities happening in Tibet. He said, it hasn't been such an easy life. And then he said, but I'm pretty happy. (laughs) Which, of course, is what one sees with him, you know, is that he he seems so bright um, and pretty happy. He said, the reason that I'm pretty happy is because of the force of compassion. The compassion makes me feel close to people, whoever they are, rather than than so separate and so alone. And so it was really amazing for me because I was sitting there in a crowd of, you know, 250,000 other people, and I thought, you know, I bet a lot of people sitting in this park could say it hasn't been such an easy life. And I wonder how many of us could actually say, but I'm pretty happy. (laughs) So compassion is the conduit to, to that very special, obviously it's an unusual kind of happiness. It's very, very unusual and very deep. And compassion is the means for, for connecting to that tremendous sense of oneness. And then the third of the Brahmavihara is a sympathetic joy, being happy at others' happiness. The far enemy is envy or jealousy, You're looking at somebody's happiness and, and feeling disturbed at the sight The near enemy is sometimes called giddiness, where we're just kind of giddy, but not really based on seeing the happiness of others. And another understanding of the near enemy is the state of comparing. 
where we have that same tendency to look at how someone else is doing, but not for the sake of delighting in their happiness, because we're lost in that what is really kind of a ceaseless spiral of comparison. I think we all know the the sheer restlessness that comes from being lost in a state of constantly comparing. In the Buddhist psychology, it's interesting because they say that the the state of comparing is unskillful no matter what the conclusion is that you draw. You know, you might look at somebody and say, well, I'm better than they are, or I'm worse than they are, or I'm equal to them. But no matter what the conclusion is, the very act of your mind going out in that way is considered unskillful because it is kind of ceaseless. You know, just think about sitting here. You come into the hall and you sit down, and we have no real way of knowing how profound somebody else's meditation might or might not be. So we use these very artificial measurements like, did they move during the meditation? You know, so you come in and you sit down, and halfway through the sitting, somebody behind you moves, and you think, oh, good. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm really a much better meditator than they are because here I am sitting still, and, you know, 25 minutes into the sitting, they've already moved. And then two minutes later, you start thinking, but, you know, they were already here when I got here. <laughs> you know, maybe they sat through the previous sitting and the entire walking period, and they're still sitting halfway into this sitting. You know, I'm much worse than they are. You know, and you kind of scope out everybody sitting in your immediate vicinity, like your neighborhood here, you know, and you get your position in reference to everybody here, and you're all set, you know, and then somebody new comes in. And you think, "Uh uh-oh, you know, I don't know about them. And then it's just like, it's constant. You know, it's this kind of gnawing anxiety and, and lack of being centered in oneself. That's the problem with comparing. Now, of the four Brahma-viharas of metta, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity, sympathetic joy is often considered the most difficult to cultivate. It's not impossible. It's very possible. Some people seem to have a natural quality of sympathetic joy, and it's a very beautiful quality. Others, most of us, need to actually practice it. Mostly, we're not really cruel people. You know, the problem with feeling compassion for somebody is that We don't necessarily slow down enough or take the time or shift our habituated view enough to recognize the pain somebody's in. Once we do that, when we see that they are actually suffering in some way, then very often compassion will arise for them. But to actually take delight in someone else's happiness needs a strong balance of mind (laughs) because often we have the feeling that happiness is a very limited commodity in this universe and the more somebody else has, the less there's going to be for us as though we are being cheated 
because somebody else is successful or has good fortune. And here the Dalai Lama also says something quite wonderful. He said, It only makes sense to be happy for the happiness of others because then our chances of experiencing happiness increase six billion to one. (laughs) And he went on to say, those are very good odds. (laughs) You know, when you think about it, it's like you don't even have to go out and do something to get happy. You just have to see someone else be happy and then you're happy. So it's, it's easier. We all know the feeling and how beautiful a feeling it is, I think, because we know what it's like to be the recipient of sympathetic joy when something good happens for us and somebody is truly, genuinely happy for us. It it feels like an amazing gift. And it's quite different than those times when something really good or fortunate happens for us and other people look at us and they're not really that happy that it happened which we can feel, and how, how belittling or how that really drags our energy down. It's quite different. It may be difficult, but it's certainly not impossible. And here, again, compassion is like our conduit to the freedom of mind that is sympathetic joy, of actually being happy for the happiness of others. When I was practicing in Burma, uh, Upandita had this sort of exercise. He had different ones periodically, which he would, he would um, challenge us with. And this one was when I was doing sympathetic joy. And he called me into his um, room and said, okay, now imagine you're sitting in a room and it's full of people that you really like and admire, and one person that you don't like. And all of these people that you like so much are heaping praise upon this person that you don't like. And then he said, how do you feel? (laughs) That's the sympathetic joy test. But the truth is, if we if we recognize the actual nature of life, how vulnerable we all are. You know, we get what we want, it goes away. We go up, we go down. We have success, and it changes. When we realize the fragility of life, then we might look at that person sitting in the chair who's being praised by all of these other people, And there might be a genuine reflection, like, do I want this person to only suffer in their life? Do I want them to never have the the sense of joy that they might get from all of this praise? Mostly, not always, but mostly the answer is, no, I don't want them to just suffer and suffer and suffer and suffer. If we use the the vehicle of compassion to recognize we don't just feel compassion when somebody is really down, you know, when they're having a very hard time. Compassion also reminds us of the truth of change. How we have something and then we don't. We want something, we get it, it's gone. 
everything seems like it will be perfect forever, and then something happens. That's just how life is. If we remember that, we can actually have delight at the joy people have. So that's the third of the Brahma-viharas. And they balance each other out, compassion and sympathetic joy. Compassion, which is born of seeing suffering in a balanced way, opening to suffering, is balanced by sympathetic joy, which reminds us to look for that which is joyful, that which is beautiful, that which is pleasant. If we only look for the suffering, then there may be a tendency to be lost in that extreme, to lose that sense of balance. If we only look for the joy and refuse to open to the suffering, then in the immortal words of Trungpa Rinpoche, good luck. (laughs) People used to go to him, this very great Tibetan Lama, with many, many, many kinds of descriptions and experiences or wishes or desires, and he would just look at them and say, good luck. (laughs) You know, so that was kind of a good luck moment. We have to be able to open to both, the, the sorrow and the joy, the difficult times and the wonderful times, and to use both of those to, to bring some sense of balance in the end. <clears throat> and then the last of the Brahmaviharas is balance. It's, it's the state of equanimity. It's equanimity that is the voice of wisdom. It's the articulation of wisdom. It's equanimity that keeps each of the other three, metta and compassion and sympathetic joy, from falling into their near enemy. Equanimity or balance of mind is what keeps metta from becoming attachment. It's what keeps compassion from becoming what they call grief. It's said to be equanimity that allows sympathetic joy to even exist. You know, because we have to have some sense of balance to be able to open in that way. Not to be just lost in comparing, but to actually take delight in the happiness of others. All of that is because of equanimity. It's because of wisdom. Wisdom tells us that everything changes. There's constant movement. There's flux that nothing in this universe is static, and that that is the essential nature of life. We can be okay with that. It's actually how things are. Once I was hiking with some friends um, in this state parking in Northern California, and we decided we were going to walk in for three days, and then on the fourth day we were going to turn around and walk back out along the same path, so retrace our steps, in effect. And so this is still the third day, and we're walking in. It happened to be a day of many, many hours of very steady, unremitting downhill walking. And at one point, this friend I was with and I both stopped. It's like we had this simultaneous enlightenment experience, and we both just stopped where we were and looked at each other. And he said to me, in a dualistic universe, downhill can only mean one thing. And sure enough, he was right, because the next day when we turned around, retracing our steps, it was many, many, many hours of very steady, unremitting uphill walking. And on a certain level, not 
certainly on all levels, but on a certain level, it is a dualistic universe where there's pleasure and pain. We go up, we go down. There's gain and loss. There's praise and blame. There's fame and disrepute. The Buddha talked about it as the eight vicissitudes. Pleasure and pain, gain and loss, praise and blame, fame and disrepute. And said there is no one in this universe who experiences only pleasure and no pain. There's nobody who experiences only gain and no loss, or only praise and no blame. It's the very nature of things. It's not that someday we will get our efforts to control matters so highly tuned that we'll be successful and life will somehow flatten out. It's not like that. And really we all know that. I'm always amused at how the very same action can sometimes bring praise and sometimes bring blame. I know... Uh, Many of you sometimes ask about when we come into the hall and bow, if we do, to the Buddha statue. You know, we, um, in the uh, cultures where many of us did a lot of meditation training, like in Burma, a Buddha image is not a piece of art. A Buddha image is really a sacred object. And so it's treated in a certain fashion. So you don't put your hat on it or, you know, the kinds of things we see here and... um, And it's customary just to bow. So the first time anybody ever did that here, they just wanted to. You know, it meant something to them, one of the teachers. And so he came into the hall, and he bowed, and then he led the sitting. He got up, and by the time he got to the bulletin board, there were notes on the board for him. He pulled off the first note, and it said, you know, I was so happy to see you bowing to the Buddha because... I also have a very strong um, devotional side, and it meant something to me to see you open up, uh, kind of like give permission for that. And then the next note he pulled down said, I was really appalled to see you bowing to the Buddha. You know, that kind of thing might fit in Asia, but it really doesn't belong here, and why are you superimposing these customs on us, you know, when it really isn't, isn't our culture? And I mean, you know how long it takes to get from here to the bulletin board? <laughs> not long. <laughs> it's not a very long trip. You know, but they beat him to it, you know, so that they could express their views. The same action. Some people offered praise, other people offered blame. Life is like that. The Buddha said there's always blame in this world. And one of the uh, stories around his saying that is something I've always liked because I think it shows his kind of common sense. He said, the stories about this time... Um, a man came to the monastery to learn something of the Buddhist teaching and it said that the first person he came upon was a monk who had taken a temporary vow of silence. And so when the man said to him, will you tell me something of what the Buddha teaches, the monk remained silent and the man became furious and he just stomped away. He came back a second day and came upon another disciple of the Buddha's, this monk named Saraputra, who was very renowned not only for his deep realization in practice, but for his very great intellectual knowledge of the teaching. And so when the man said to him, will you tell me something of what the Buddha teaches, uh, Saraputra began a rather theoretical and 
and rather elaborate description, and the man became furious, and he stomped away. So the very same man came back on a third day and came upon another disciple of the Buddha, this monk named Ananda. And Ananda, having heard what happened on the first day and having heard what happened on the second day, when he was asked the question, it said he was careful to say something, but not too much. And the man got really angry. He said, you know, how dare you treat such profound matters so sketchily? And he stomped away. So this group of people went off to see the Buddha, and they said, Oh, Lord Buddha, this is what happened on the first day. This is what happened on the second day. This is what happened on the third day. What do you have to say? And the Buddha said, There's always blame in this world. He said, If you say nothing, some people will blame you. If you say a lot, some people will blame you. If you say just a little bit, some people will blame you. There's always blame in this world. Really, it's the kind of thing we could never control. And to recognize it doesn't mean that we're indifferent, which happens to be the near enemy of equanimity, indifference. But it does mean we can bring the wisdom, the perspective of understanding to the situation so that our reactions are not just driven by ignorance, by an assumption we should be in control of something we could never, ever control to begin with. The far enemy of equanimity is is that kind of reaction, reactivity. The near enemy is indifference, which is actually kind of a subtle form of, of hostility or aversion. It's a withdrawal of our energy. It's pulling back. Equanimity doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean pulling away from what's going on or shrinking away from it or cutting off from it. It means being there fully, but with the balance that comes from seeing clearly, from knowing what is the truth of things. It's equanimity that allows us to give a gift freely, give it purely, without needing to be thanked in a certain way or else decrying the the value of our gift. It's equanimity that allows us to come forward in the face of suffering, that reminds us that we can't make everything better all of the time, that we can be present And in fact, if we recognize that we're not completely in control, we can be more present. What we mistake for gentleness is often a state of being sort of humiliated at our inability to control. what we mistake for generosity is often an effort to manipulate and thereby seize control in that way. If we truly recognize that every moment of our lives were these combinations of conditions coming together, not that we can't influence or affect, or this is not a call for passivity, It's really a call for wisdom. 
You know, once we were teaching in uh, this place in Northern California, we'd never taught there before. I never have since. <laughs> it was January, and uh, it was pouring rain. It was it was this torrential rain. It just came down sheets. It was a lot like monsoon season in India. And this was a facility that didn't have a lot of indoor walking space, and so people were having to go out and get really sopping wet, either to go from one building to another building or to walk outside with umbrellas, you know, and it was like a mess. And, and sitting after sitting, I would be leading, and I'd be sitting there thinking, I feel so badly that people are getting so wet. You know, I should really apologize for the weather and just say how I'm sorry I am that people are getting wet. And, and then one day I was sitting there and I had the thought, wait a minute, I'm not from California. You know, this isn't, this isn't even my weather. This is their weather. <laughs> You know, they should apologize to me. Why should I apologize to them? I'm getting wet too. I have to go from building to building. And, you know, so I use that story as an example of how we can assume we are in control of the universe and then feel, oh no, I failed, or we're humiliated, or we have to try even harder to make up for it, or all kinds of things, you know, from that basic misperception. So I use that story. I came right back here since we always teach here in February. Um, and told that story as an example of that. And then the last day of the Metta retreat, uh, which is not going to happen tomorrow, this giant ice storm came up so that I had to get up here and end the retreat early so that people could travel more safely and have more time to get where they were going. And So I got up here and made this announcement that this giant ice storm was coming, and all these people called out to me, oh, Sharon, you should have done better, you know. <laughs> you are from Massachusetts. This is your weather. <laughs> You know, but that's often how we kind of walk around thinking about life. That we are in some state of domination, which of course we're not. Everything is constantly changing all of the time. As conditions shift, influences, relationships, different experiences arise. And again, this isn't about being passive. It's about recognizing how things are. The result is not withdrawing our energy, but really an opening. It's a spaciousness. Equanimity is like a spacious mind that's still very connected, but without that extra thing of assuming that if we try hard enough, it's all going to be just the way we want it to be. The example that's always used in the Buddhist text um, for equanimity is a parent whose child is now an adult and is leaving home. The relationship of the parent to the child is not precisely the same as when the child was, was an infant, was young, was growing up. There needs to be a recognition on the part of the parent that, you know, it's not like you're, you're throwing them out and saying, well, you know, goodbye. <laughs> Um, there's still tremendous connection and love and metta and compassion and sympathetic joy and all of that. But there also needs to be some recognition that this person is now an adult. They're going to be making their own decisions, making their own choices. There will be consequences to those decisions and choices. We care, but we're not in control. That ability to connect and also let go of the need to control is equanimity. 
And so they're always using that particular example in text. So I used to read that all the time, and I used to think, what nice families everybody had in the time of the Buddha. <laughs> you know, all these parents, their children would grow up, and they'd let go so gracefully, you know, and, and there would be just this tremendous connection, and at the same time, all this equanimity. That's the feeling state. When there's pleasure, when there's pain, when there's gain, when there's loss, praise, blame, fame, disrepute, we see it for what it is, and we feel it for what it is. But there's not that illusion that if only we tried harder, nothing would have changed, or that somehow there is the perfect act in this universe which will bring only praise and no blame. It's just not that way. You know, when my first book, Loving Kindness, came out, I was in California, and um, I had lunch with somebody who said to me, um, you know, Sharon, you wrote that book in such a way that it's just like being with you. It's like sitting down and having a conversation with you. And I was ecstatic at hearing this. I was so happy. This took me a very long time to write this book. In fact, that's why I just pulled it up to look at the, the blurbs on the back. Somebody said, Sharon Salzberg's long-awaited first book. Someone else said, we have been waiting for Sharon Salzberg's book for a long time. So it took me a very long time to write this book. And, and to hear somebody say that, you know, that it was just like being with me, was, it was so moving. So much so that at dinner that night, I was having dinner with a whole other group of people, I brought up that comment, and somebody at the dinner table said, that's not true. <laughs> she said, I'm reading your book. It's nothing like being with you. So I thought, okay. You can be ecstatic at lunch and depressed at dinner, or you can take a moment and remember it's the same book. It's just one book, which was written from whatever motivation was guiding me at the time with whatever level of skill I could bring forth at the time. Somebody had one response to it, and somebody had another response to it. Now, I would never, ever want to imply to you I didn't notice the difference, (laughs) and that I didn't care in some way. But how much do we care is the question. How utterly shattered do we become? How much do we imagine it was all bad? You know, how much do we land our sense of integrity not in what was within us in the creation, but in the different responses which we could never hope to control? So how much do we care in that sense of of clinging or condemning? To come to a state of equanimity is to be able to understand. The spaciousness allows anything to happen. The comment, the reaction, without there being all of that identification and the the collapse of our sense of possibility around the fact that we couldn't make it all perfect. There's another quotation from Ajahn Chah, the Thai forest master, which he's very famous for, where he said, 
something like, as you meditate, your mind will become quieter and quieter until it becomes like a, a still forest pool. He said, many wonderful and rare animals will come to drink at the pool, but you will remain still. This is the happiness of the Buddha. I really uh, love that quotation because of that sense of the many wonderful and rare animals coming to drink at the pool. Everything still happens. Domesticated animals, wild animals, all kinds of things happen. But there can be a stillness within that's like living in harmony. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.